Good morning and welcome to chapel. If you all could please stand and join with me in singing um, 18 from Sing the Journey over my head. And Jenny will be singing the solo line. Good morning and welcome to chapel. I hope you are all enjoying our reprieve from the cold of winter. It is my pleasure this morning to welcome Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil um, to Goshen College. Dr. McNeil will be sharing her story with us this morning, some of her story with us, which she has entitled A More Excellent Way, a faith story about racial reconciliation and healing. Dr. Salter McNeil has extensive experience in the field of racial reconciliation. For nearly 13 years, she served as the regional coordinator of multi-ethnic training for InterVarsity Fellowship, Christian Fellowship. And in 1995, in response to her growing passion for authentic racial healing, she founded Overflow Ministries, a nonprofit faith-based organization devoted to the ministry of racial and ethnic re reconciliation. Dr. Salter McNeil continues this work through Salter McNeil and Associates a racial and ethnic reconciliation consulting firm based in Chicago. She holds a Master of Divinity degree from Fuller Theological Seminary and a Doctorate of Ministry from Palmer Theological Seminary. She is also the co-author of the book, The Heart of Racial Justice, 
how soul change leads to social change. We are honored to have Dr. McNeil with us over the coming days, and you will have a variety of opportunities to hear her speak and have conversation with her. There will be a reception this morning following chapel in the CITL offices in the Union, and Dr. McNeil will be speaking in a more informal setting this evening at uh, worship night at 9 p.m. in the Rec Fitness Center. And she will be with us again in chapel on Friday, um, followed by a time of question and answer for any who wish to stay. As we prepare to hear Dr. McNeil's message this morning, I invite you to join me in prayer. God of all nations and of all peoples, we confess this morning that we still live in a broken world, a world where we are still divided by race. We long, O oh God, for the fullness of your kingdom, where all are fully welcome, where there is true unity and reconciliation. Open our hearts and our minds and our spirits to you this morning, O oh God. May your spirit guide us as we work for your justice in our community here at Goshen College, as well as in the larger world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please join me in welcoming Dr. McNeil. Thank you so much. It's my privilege to be at Goshen College. This is my first time here, but I've heard of you for such a long time, and uh, it's really an honor. I have friends who have been affiliated with Goshen in the past, and so the thought that I'm here, uh, having followed their footsteps, really pleases me. So I greet you in the name of the Lord. It's an honor to be here. Uh, got in this morning from Chicago, Illinois, and excited to share this conversation with you over the next few days. As I think about my story and this notion of a more excellent way, I decided that what I really wanted to talk about with this whole notion of how do we become interculturally competent people. Uh, I, I realized that I'm trying to find a new way to have an old conversation. Uh, in the past, and I still use the word reconciliation, and it's still very dear to my heart, is what I believe I've been called to, and it's a biblical word. Uh, scripture says that we've been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation, and so I do believe that, and I absolutely advocate for that. But as I speak about at, uh, racial reconciliation, there's some people who feel like that's an oxymoron. On. We've never been reconciled in the first place or consiled, so we can't be reconciled. Uh, and so I don't know what you're talking about. And so I began saying, is there a new way to talk about this? Or uh, sometimes I'll say in an African-American context, uh, say for Black History Month, I'm going to be talking about reconciliation. And they'll say, yep, you tell them. And I think, well, I think reconciliation involves all of us. Or I'll talk about reconciliation, and there'll be students who might be from European-American descent, white students students will say, oh, here we go again. And so I thought, is there a way to talk about this in a fresh way? Is there a way to talk about this in a new way? So I want to tell you something that's been happening to me. Uh, I've had people uh, talking to me and asking for my consultation who are not from Christian colleges and universities. In fact, what they are are people who are in corporate America looking for graduates like you. And they're saying that they're looking for two types of graduates. And if they could find them, they're more apt to, to hire this kind of individual than another. One, they're looking for moral and ethical people. They've said that in, in the world in which we live, having people who show up for work and actually do what they say they've come to do, they don't steal from the boss, and they actually don't lie on the forms, that is a new commodity. Folks don't always tell the truth. And so they're attracted to Christian higher education 
education because they believe that one of the things we do in these kinds of colleges like Goshen is that we produce people who are moral and ethical. And so that's a plus on our side. But one of the things that they're concerned about is even though we have, I think, a real strong case for our moral and ethical graduates, they're finding that our college students who graduate from Christian colleges and universities aren't always able to be interculturally competent. That when they get with folks from other nations, other nationalities, other ethnicities, other cultural perspectives, other worldviews, that we're not able to be as interactive with them. That we're not able to share in meaningful ways to be competent with the skills, the behaviors, the awarenesses that allow us to come into a company that's rich with a new understanding that we live in a global community. They're looking for students who can marry their ethical and their moral, moral sense with with their cultural competency and their ability to be with people who don't look like them or think like them. And they find Christian colleges and universities not being as great at that. That we talk about it, but we don't know what it looks like. So I thought I would tell you what I think it looks like. And because I'm informed by scripture, I began searching for models of what does intercultural competency look like? What does reconciled people look like? What would be the steps we could take to prove that we're beginning to produce these kinds of students who could be hired after they're graduating, amen? That wouldn't be a bad thing. We would like to be hired after we're graduated. So I, now that I have your attention, for the next 30 minutes, let me see if I can't take you through what I see in the life of Jesus Christ. How I see Jesus as a model for us of what it might look like for us to begin taking some intentional steps toward becoming people in the 21st century who could actually be interculturally competent. That we could be with people who are not like us and find ourselves able to meaningfully interact with them in mutually beneficial ways. So with that, would you now listen to the word of God? This is from John chapter 4, and I'll begin at reading at verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he, Jesus, came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. There is a break now. The disciples return, and when they come back, the woman decides that the conversation with Jesus is over, and this is where we pick up the story in the text. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, 
come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. This is the word of God. And so, with that as our backdrop, let's now look at some of the very intentional things that Jesus did as we re-explore this text. The first thing I want to suggest to those of us who want to produce people who graduate from institutions like Goshen, who really want to be culturally competent, interculturally competent, is that it will require a divine mandate from God. The first verse that I read to you, verse 4, said, now he had to go through Samaria. Now, I would beg to differ because Jews did not have to go through Samaria. They didn't have to go through Samaria geographically. They avoided Samaria. They didn't have to go through ge uh, 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 Samaria sociologically. They didn't hang out with those people. So he didn't have to go, did he? And so as I think about that, I think, what does this have to? What is this he had to go? He's already in trouble, which is why he's leaving where he is, so he has to go? I think the reason Jesus has to do what his peers do not do, what his uh, cultural group does not do, what his ethnic group is not doing, the Jews don't even come close to going into Samaria. They go around Samaria. But I believe Jesus had to because he announces to us that he has come to do the will of his father. Father. That's what Jesus says about himself, that he marches to the beat of a different drummer. So I want to suggest that Jesus has to go through Samaria because of a divine mandate, this call to obey the Father. And I want to suggest to you and I that if we're ever going to take this as a core value, both individually and institutionally, it begins with us believing that God is calling us to do it. That's the very first step. And so people who are not sure if this really matters or not, I would say the first place to begin is to investigate scripture, to pray, and to seek whether or not this is something that you believe is biblically driven, is a call from God, or isn't an elective? Is it something that people who happen to like this stuff get to do, or is this a mandate for the church? A divine mandate from God is the first thing that I think is going to require if we're going to produce the kind of people we say we want to produce. The second thing I notice is this. Intercultural competency as modeled by Jesus requires a real need for people who are different from us. Let me show you where I see that in the text. The Bible says that Jesus is wearied and tired from the journey. He has been walking by foot. He has been walking by foot, and the scripture says that it is six, the sixth hour, which is 12 o'clock noon. So get the impression. Look with me for a minute. We're in Palestinian hot desert sun. It is at the heat of the day. The height of the sun is up in, in the sky, and Jesus has been traveling by foot. His disciples have gone into to the town to buy food. He sits by this well, and even though later the woman's comments are sarcastic, she's accurate. He doesn't have a bucket or some means by which to retrieve water from the well himself. So when he asked this water, this woman for a drink of water, I want to suggest to you that he wasn't trying to make up an evangelistic conversation, that this wasn't a you know, kind of how we do when we see somebody coming around us who's a little different from us and we think like, oh, like, can I, you know, people say, can I talk to you about your hair? Well, yes, we can, but that's not going to change your life. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I just thought I'd tell you the truth. That's a curiosity question. It's not a need question. Jesus asked for water because he needs water. And I want to suggest to you that if we're ever going to really do this and not just talk about it, it's going to be because we believe we need this. 
that it's in our best self-interest individually and institutionally, which is why I talk to you about the kind of graduates that people are looking for. If we don't take this seriously and if we don't see this as our need, I want to suggest to you that the world is changing so critically and so rapidly that we're going to produce graduates who can't get a job. Now that's a need. And Jesus is saying to us, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to go into cultures that are not your own, go into those cultures not just with what you can give, but what you need of them. The third thing I see is this. It's going to require leaving our comfort zone. Jesus is sitting at a well. He's sitting at a well in Samaria. And he is sitting at a well where he knows this is not his this is not where he's supposed to be. His comfort zone is in Jerusalem. The food he eats is in Jerusalem. The language he speaks, the customs he knows, the cultural comfort zone for him is not in this place. But he intentionally makes a decision to go outside of the place where he'd be the person who now is starting to have notoriety. People are talking about Jesus all over the place. They're hearing that he's discipling and baptizing more disciples than John. So he's beginning to get a, a, a street cred is what they say in Chicago. People are beginning to say this guy is really popular but he goes to a place where he's not popular he goes to a place where he's not the person on the top of the heap he leaves his comfort zone and so so often as I talk to people who say this is a value for us we invite speakers in which is a wonderful step I'm not at all criticizing and I'm thrilled to be here but the truth is if we're going to do this for real it requires us being in places where we are not in our comfort zone and we're not just there to help. I can't tell you how hard it was for me. Yo aprendiendo habla español, so I'm learning to speak Spanish. And it's very important to me. And so I said that a lot, and one of my friends said, es importante por ti. I said, sí, es muy importante. And so they said, come with us to Mexico. We're going there in just about a few months. If you really want to learn to speak Spanish, there's places where people speak it all day long. <laughs> Now, it's easy for me in Goshen College to speak a little Spanish and to say how much I'm learning. But when I was in Mexico, and I was not in my comfort zone, I can tell you that the doctorate degree didn't help me. And all of my winsome jokes didn't get over. Because I was completely and totally out of the place where I know the skills that make me on top. As opposed to going as Dr. Brenda, the great speaker, I went as a person with a team. And when they said I had to preach, I was sorry it was my turn. I was so scared that I was going to mess it up. I had an interpreter, and I was thankful for her. But most of the time, they said, you try as hard as you can. And when you can't do it, then I'll try. Then we'll pick up for you. But that's what it feels like to be out of our comfort zones. I could tell you more, but time won't allow. But if you come and hang out with me later, I'll tell you more stories. So the th next thing I want to tell you about is this. I believe that the fourth step that is very important is this notion of intentionality, that it's going to require intentional interaction. I've already said to you that Jesus is sitting down by a well, and this well is not in Bethany. This well is not in, you know, uh, Galilee. This well is in Samaria. Now, if we were having an open discussion, I would ask you, who drew water in that culture? Women. And so I want to ask you just a probability question. What do you think would be the chances that a woman from a Samaria would show up at that well eventually? What are you, 
<laughs> See, I want to suggest we got a 100% chance that because he plopped himself down there, he was absolutely, eventually going to have a conversation with a Samaritan woman. This is not a surprise. It's an intentional place where he sat. And I want to suggest to you that there are places that we can intentionally put ourselves, like with me in Mexico, where we can be in places where if we want to be interculturally competent, if we want to meet people who are different than we are, we can put ourselves there and have that interaction. It's an intentional decision to go places and to be with people. This is Black History Month. We just had Martin Luther King's birthday. I'm telling you, there's celebrations all over Indiana right now that if we went there, we'd find a lot of black people. They would just be in that room. Amen. And so when we say, I'm looking to become more interculturally competent, I want to ask you, how hard are you working to get there? Because I think Jesus is modeling that people who really want to do this, they get up off their seat of do nothing and they show up in places where they can have the interactions that they say they want to have. Ah, amen. I feel like I'm preaching now. So let me go to the next one. Step number five, this notion of becoming interculturally competent, becoming people who are able to marry our moral and ethical commitment with our, our, our call to justice and relevancy in a global and a changing world, it's going to require risk-taking for everybody, individually and institutionally. And that's not an easy thing. Let me show you the risk that Jesus takes. He comes to the well, and he comes to the well at 12 o'clock noon where most people don't go for drawing water. You draw water. I've been in Africa, and I've watched women with huge jars on their head, and I, I'm, I'm amazed at their ability to balance this, this, this load. But they don't do it in the middle of the day. It's generally in the early morning hours or in the evening when it's cool because it's hard, back-breaking work. And so this woman is coming to this well because she doesn't want to see anybody. And she definitely doesn't want to see a Jew. And a man, she's had it. <laughs> and so she gets to this well, and Jesus, who hasn't done one thing to her, says, hey, would you give me a drink of water? And she says to him, how can you ask me for a drink of water? Now, I think there's a bit of her that's wondering, you know, what rock have you been under? How dare you? You Jews think you boss people around. You think you can come into our community and ask for stuff. I'm not your maid, okay? This is not Jerusalem. You're on my turf. You're in my territory. You're in my town. And you will die of thirst before I ever help you. You know how you treat our people? And I want to suggest to you that whenever we really go out to be interculturally competent with all of our sincere motives and with all of our desire to really learn, there'll be times that we'll go places and we'll ask for help and we'll try to be intentional and we'll show up at, at certain gatherings and people will question our motives and they'll wonder what we're doing there. And that will happen and that's the risk we take. It won't always feel good to pursue this notion of being interculturally competent, of being reconcilers in the earth. There'll be times that people will tell us to take a hike and it'll hurt because we somehow represent to them something that frightens them. Maybe it's true, the book that I read when I was once in a bookstore, maybe it's true that hurt people hurt people. And that's what happens when we take the risk to engage this sincerely. Not everyone will believe that your motives are pure, and not everyone will be happy to see us when we come. And there's risks we take institutionally. 
people who have been supporting us as we take the risk to become more uh, driven in our policies and our procedures and taking this seriously, there'll be people who say, we've never done it like this before, and if you keep trying this, we're going to pull out on you. And it's a great risk we take when we start really making this an intentional major core value for our institutions. There are people who say, look, we never liked that and that's not a part of who we are and we're, we're going to take our tuition. Our students won't go anymore. And it's enough to make you shake in your boots. So I'm here to tell you that this is not a cute little PowerPoint. This is real life. And if we're going to ever do it, we're going to have to really uh, uh, stand tall and strong. And we're going to have to be able to face opposition in the face because it will come individually and institutionally. If we ever do it right, there will be resistance to it. And that's why we got to be willing to take a risk. The sixth thing I notice here is this. Intercultural competence, becoming people who are able to be in a changing world with people from every tribe in every nation, what the kingdom of God says it's supposed to look like. It's going to require countercultural social action. Now that's a mouthful, so let me break it down. Jesus knows that he is breaking every rule in the book. As a rabbi, he's not supposed to talk about the, the Torah or religious matters with a woman. He's breaking the religious rules sociologically and culturally, he's not supposed to be with, Samaria, with Samaritans. The belief was that if a Samaritan person got close to you, they would defile you just by virtue of their touch. It got so crazy that one of the, the, the myths about Samaritans was this, and it was true as, as the Jews received it. If you were walking on a sunny day, and remember I tell you it's 12 o'clock noon where this story is taking place. If you were walking and it was sunny and a Samaritan shadow and a Jewish person's shadow crossed, the crossing of their shadows would make the Jew unclean. So Jesus knows that by having this close proximity to this woman, a woman who has a poor reputation at best, which is one of the reasons why she doesn't even want to be with her own people, he knows what's going to happen. He knows the type of uh, uh, risk he's taking and the type of uh, 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 boundaries he's transgressing, but he chooses to take social action, to go against the social mores of his day, to engage a woman from another culture, a person of another gender, a person of another worldview. He intentionally knows that nobody else in his people group would try to do this, but he decides, I'm not going to talk about it, we're not going to pray about it, we're going to literally put feet to our prayers is what they taught me in Africa. Put feet to your prayers. He puts feet to his prayers and he shows up. And so I want to suggest to you that the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, he says to us the same thing. Don't be conformed any longer to this world and how it thinks and how it does things. But you be transformed, be countercultural, think differently, swim upstream, go against the grain. The world says stay with your own groups and stay with your own affinities and hang out with folks who like you and get your jokes and know you well. And I believe that a part of what it means for us to be socially uh, active is that we look for ways that we literally engage the powers, the principalities, the systems and the structures around us where we don't just think about it, we just don't pray about it, we just don't wring our hands about it, we don't read the newspaper and shut it. We look for ways that we can demonstrate a counterculture way of being in the earth. 
I'm really taken by a young man named Shane Claiborne, and I'm reading a lot of his stuff lately. And I think Shane is an example of counterculturalism. He's challenging me, and I'm on the team. But he's saying stuff like, he's wondering if the economic crisis that we're in is an opportunity for us to live like we used to live in scripture when it talked about people having all things in common where people, if they had need, they kind of put it out now in our day, we'd put it out on the website and we'd say, so-and-so has a need of a car and somebody who had an extra car would meet that need and that he's suggesting that capitalism is failing and maybe there's a need for us to care for each other in the way that we were called to. Now that's countercultural. And most of us start getting lumps in our throat when we think like that. I know I do. But it's time for us, if we're ever going to be interculturally competent, we've got to begin investigating ways that we get in the game and we swim upstream and we question even some of our core assumptions about how people are together. Jesus is doing that with this woman. And I believe if we're going to move forward, we'd have to do it too. Now, number seven is where I get in trouble. So I left myself a good time here for number seven because number seven is when people like me and then they think, what? So let me talk about number seven. Intercultural competency requires relinquishing power. Let me show you first in the text. Jesus comes to this, um, to this relationship. He comes to this situation. And I want to suggest that all the power cards are stacked on Jesus' side of the table. Let me give you some, uh, some ways of looking at this. If I had to put this hand up and say this is Jesus and this hand up and I'd say this is the Samaritan woman, you see if you agree with me. I'd say that as a man in that culture, Jesus came with more power than a woman in that culture. Women were seen as property. You belong to your father or to your husband, and your purpose were to have children. And so uh, a, a man in that culture clearly had more social, cultural esteem than a woman would. So I'd say Jesus goes up one there. Nod your head if you'd agree. All right. And then I'd say, okay, Jew, Samaritan. I'd say that the Jewish culture probably was more dominant than, than the Samaritan culture. Would you agree? So I'd give Jesus a little bump here. All right. Let's see. Rabbi. Hmm. That's probably educated. I would give him a little bump on that one. What do you think? Okay, so Rabbi, we put Jesus up. We still got more power. He's educated. He's, he's got a following, so we've got some notoriety. We haven't even mentioned the Son of God. And look at this. Look at, look at this. I mean, Son of God would take him all the way out. So, I mean, you know, and he has, he has spiritual power. He could, have, he could have started that conversation instead of asking her for water. He could have started that conversation by saying, I'm so glad you've come to the well. You've been married five times. That's why I'm waiting for you. And then she would say, whoa, you're a prophet guy. I can see you've got spiritual power. But he doesn't even go for that card because he's got so much already stacked up. So now look what Jesus does. It's quick, but it's profound. Instead of coming to her as the powerful helper, look what he does. He says to her, will you give me a drink? And he immediately relinquishes power and he empowers her. He becomes the helpy and she becomes the helper. Ah, that's what it looks like. It's the leveling of the playing field. It's the recognition that we're not always the people who go in to help. But that sometimes, if we're really wanting to be interculturally competent, not just mission-minded, but interculturally competent, we're going not just as the helper, but we're coming and we're watching for ways that we ask for water and become the helpee. 
And that's where we get challenged because I know enough about Christian colleges and Christian higher education to know that a lot of us do service learning abroad and a lot of us go here and, and there and do all kinds of volunteer work and I am thrilled about it. I love our volunteerism spirit that's rising up in this generation. I'm absolutely thrilled about it. But I want to suggest to you that few people who have those experiences come back to campus and implement them into their lives. And that's, that's a problem. Because that means that we had an experience, but we didn't become interculturally competent. That somehow we went and we tutored, and we served, and we built a house, and we passed out food, and I'm grateful for every single thing we've done. But it doesn't suggest that while we were there, we sat at the feet of the people who were there, and they taught us. And we learned from them. And now you can see why this gets me in trouble. Because people like you say, how dare you? How dare you? And I want to say to you, I say it with love. Because people aren't believing us. I wrote a book called A Credible Witness, Reflections on Power, Evangelism, and Race. And I wrote that book because the credibility of the Christian community is in question in the world. People are not believing our rhetoric because our words and our actions aren't matching up enough. And they're not seeing us as humble learners who come into communities willing to become intercultural. They see us as people who come in with a culture and we bring it and we push it. And I want to suggest that if we're ever going to be in, interculturally competent on an individual level, it's going to require that. Now let me just take a moment and talk about institutions. This notion of power, I have been more places where they'll hire me to come in and to do this work and they'll say, oh, you're just wonderful, we want the work. But as soon as we begin talking about changing the policies and the procedures and the ways of, of, of measuring, benchmarking if we're making progress, then I start to feel this subtle but clear resistance that basically says, we're not going to evaluate our faculty now, cut that out. And we're definitely not going to have performance reviews for our staff, stop it, stop it, stop it. Watch it, watch it, watch it. You can come and preach in chapel. We like that. But you're not going to mess around with our infrastructure, our decision-making policies. Now, stop that. Jesus suggests that if we're ever going to do this for real, for real, it's going to require us mastering and grappling with how we own our power. Let me go to the next one. You guys have been kind. Number eight, this notion of an authentic spirituality almost has to come after we talk about power, doesn't it? Because without God's presence working in our lives, I'm not sure we can rel relinquish power. It's not an easy thing to do. So let me show you what happens. I don't, didn't read the text or the part of the text where Jesus has this conversation. He, he begins to show his power. He talks about the fact that she's been married five times. She says, you're a prophet. And then she wants to have a theological debate about where people should worship. And Jesus says this to her. Do you know what? The forms and the systems that we have reduced worship to are not what God's looking for. God is looking for people who will worship authentically in spirit and in truth. There's an honesty. There's a transparency. There's a realness. It's not contrived. It's where, it's where I really am. It's no mask. It's not pretending. It's not hiding. It's coming in God's presence with all of our, our, our strengths and our weaknesses and saying, God, here I am to worship. Unlike Adam who hid in the garden, I'm going to show up with all my warts and all. And I'm going to say, here I am, broken me, and I'm standing right here. 
authentically me with my questions and my doubts and my fears and my power struggles, here I am. Jesus, I think, suggests to us and to this woman at the well that if we're going to ever do this, it's going to require that type of authenticity in the presence of God. Let me tell you, as I travel globally, one of the things I'm looking for is where does this happen? And I don't know how to quantify this yet, but wherever there seems to be an authentic sense of spirituality, not just exuberance, sometimes it's in total silence, but where there's real worship, it brings people together who seem to have had no other reason other than the, the power of this experience that's transforming their lives this notion of authenticity and spirituality. Let me get to number nine and then I'll finish up with 10. Number nine is this notion of reciprocity, that Jesus understands that intercultural competence is reciprocal. Jesus, after the woman says to him, hey, you don't have a bucket, so what are you talking about about this living water? You don't have a bucket. Now, Jesus could have said, yes, that's true. I'm so sorry to be in your neighborhood. I'm so sorry to be in your community. I shouldn't even be here. I'm so, I'm a Jew. I apologize. <laughs> Not what he said. He says, you're right. However, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who's speaking to you, you'd ask him and he'd give you living water. Jesus is basically saying, everything you've said is true. And there are things I don't have but there is something I do have. And if you knew who I am, you'd, we, could, we could have a reciprocal relationship. You could give me the water that I need physically, and I could give you this other water that I'd like to offer. So often when I talk about intercultural competence, reconciliation, I'll find students who are Americans and will be in another country, and I'm so sorry, I'm an American. Well, that's not helpful. Or, 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 or white students who say, you know, I know you're black and I just, I'm so sorry I'm white. <laughs> we don't need much more navel gazing in Jesus' name. We just don't need much more. We need folks who will get in the game, tie up your shoes and, and contribute what you have. This is a puzzle and every one of us has a piece of the puzzle and none of us will see the big picture unless all of us bring our piece. And that's to say that no one of us in this room is an accident. No one of us culturally, ethnically, individually, institutionally, we're not accidents. The Mennonite church is necessary for the big picture of what the church is. And who you are is necessary for the big picture of who God is. And so never get to a place where you think intercultural competency is about you just feeling guilty all the time. Intercultural competency is about each of us bringing what we have to offer, humbly saying, I do need, and I'll start with that. But as I am in this relationship, I'd love to, to give what I have to contribute. And now here we are. Let me close this thing up with this notion of being bridge people. At the end of this story, I love what happens. Now the disciples come back, and they're, they're, they're airheads, so they're not giving her a really warm reception. They come back, nobody says anything, but they look like she's grown two heads. They're like, what are you doing talking to her? Everything on their face says so. So let me tell you something real quick. Body language matters. Amen. So everybody say out loud, amen. Amen. Because sometimes you don't have to say anything, but everybody can sense you're not with this. And so she got her cues. So she got her water jaw. She says, I'm out. I'm out. Checking out. Done. She goes. But because of the experience she has with Jesus, she goes back to her people group and she says, I think you ought to check this guy out. 
I have had an experience with somebody and I believe he's authentic. I think he just might be the Christ who he says he is. I'm here to tell you that there are people who you could bridge this, this conversation to that would never invite me in, who would listen to you before they listen to me because they know you. There are different dinner conversations that you're going to be invited to have that I'd never be invited to have. So I want to suggest to you that this is not about people of color taking this seriously. This is about all of us taking this seriously, realizing that this is a thing that we need people to say, I'm a person who can bridge this conversation, this person. I can bridge this person with this person. I can bridge this community with that community. We need more people like this woman in the text who vouches for other people's credibility. I can say who I am, but if you say, I heard a speaker today, and the way she came across and what she had to say, I believe that might actually be biblical. I don't think that she has a chip on her shoulder. You might want to hear her. Why don't you check her out tomorrow afternoon? Why not come to chapel on Friday or convo on Friday? She might actually have a word for us around what it looks like to be 21st century Christians. Let me pray for us. Lord God, it's been my honor to share my heart and my thinking with these people who have given me their attention. I'm praying now for a conversation over the next three days that will open us more to what it looks like to be world-class Christians, kingdom people. And I pray that the fruit of this will impact Goshen College, for I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Go in peace. Thank you so much for your challenging and inspiring words. And if anyone is interested in having conversation um, with Brenda McNeil in the CITL offices following this, please join us for the reception. Go with the grace and peace of God.